Good morning, church. It's amazing how when the band sits down, it feels like this is how the room just fills up. I was a little bit nervous. I was going to be leaning to the left so they get up here. It's a joke. It's not a boat. It's a building. Foundations level. All right. Uh, we're in Mark chapter 9 this morning. Um, very close to finishing the chapter, but it's one of those that has so much in it that it really needs to be broken down into several sermons. So we have one more in this chapter after today. Um, Scott will be preaching that one this next week. I'm excited about that. I'm always excited when he has the opportunity to preach um, because I know he loves it and he doesn't often get that opportunity. But also, I just love seeing my brothers proclaim the Word of God. And so I hope that you are encouraged, as I am, to hear the Word of God proclaimed, no matter who's up here doing it. And this morning, as we walk through this passage, we're going to go from 30 to 41. It's a lot of Scripture. Um, I hope that... You even on your own, as we're reading it, will seek God, that you'll trust that this is the Word of God, that it has power to change, and that you would seek the Holy Spirit uh, to do that work in you, to bring to light the things that need to be brought to light in your life, that you wouldn't let this be just another time going through a passage of Scripture, but this would be a life-changing thing, because I believe it can be, but it requires something of us, so... Submitting ourselves to the Word this morning, allowing it to be something that isn't just read, but that could read us in a way that would bring us to see God is bigger than we even know Him to be right now, that, that we are smaller than we realize, uh, and that that matters significantly. So looking at it, it's three different uh, accounts as it's broken up in, in my scripture, or in my Bible, but um, it's actually goes, it actually goes together really well, so we're going to look at that, starting in verse 30. They went on from there and passed through Galilee, and he did not want anyone to know, for he was teaching his disciples, saying to them, The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And when he is killed, after three days he will rise. But they did not understand the saying, and were afraid to ask him. And they came to Capernaum, and when he he was in the house, he asked them, What were you discussing on the way? But they kept silent, for on the way they had argued with one another about who was the greatest. And he sat down and called the twelve, and he said to them, If anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. And he took a child and put him in the midst of them, and taking him in his arms, he said to them, Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me, and whoever receives me receives not me, but him who sent me. John said to him, Teacher, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him because he was not following us. But Jesus said, Do not stop him, for no one who does a mighty work in my name will be able soon afterward to speak evil of me. For the one who is not against us is for us. For truly I say to you, whoever gives you a cup of water to drink because you belong to Christ will by no means lose his reward. Let's pray. Father, we believe this is your word, but show us how it is mighty to change everything we know about our world. Show us how it turns everything on its head, how it can move us to to a deeper relationship with you and to to care more deeply for those around us. Show us how this shift of perspective it can bring about is something that would grant eternal life, that there would be reward for the, the smallest things we do, not because of 
our doing them, but because of who you're making us. And so I pray, Lord, that you would take these, these three chunks of your scripture that can be so arbitrary or stand alone, Lord, that you would show us how they go together, not just with one another, but with your word as a whole and with your plan for us as your church and your plan for the world, that you would show us the, the good things, that you would show us the great things, that you would reveal your, what, yourself in a way this morning uh, that would make us more like Christ in the best way possible. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so looking at these, it can be somewhat mysterious, maybe even a bit confusing, confusing because of the way their culture is different than ours, because of the way some of the phrasing is. It was translated from an ancient language into English, and so maybe the scripture you read looked different than even this. And so there's many things that go into trying to understand what's going on here. And I, I would say that it goes together very well. In summary... Jesus, the Son of Man, will be handed over and killed by His creation. And the disciples have no comment about this. Instead, they argue about who's going to be the greatest, and Jesus calls them out, and the disciples have no comment about that. And Jesus says, well, actually, just to correct your way of thinking, the least will be the greatest. And there's no comment about that. Instead, John seemingly changes the subject and says, well, we stopped someone from casting out demons because he wasn't with us. And Jesus says, don't do that. If they're not against us, then they're for us. And that's what we're left with. So, so what exactly is going on? I think if we dig deep enough, we can see this common theme of humility. Maybe you don't see it, but it's certainly there. Jesus, the creator of the world, has humbled himself to be killed by his creation. And then he goes on to say the lowly, the least, the humble ones are the greatest. They're actually first. And then it goes on that he's correcting John and saying, don't think like this. Don't think you're someone special. Don't think there's something special about being in this group. In fact, we need unity. We need to be for all those who are for us. And when we have that unity, we're something great. And that unity can't exist unless there's humility. So there certainly is common theme in this command for us this morning is the same as it was for them. Be humble. And so that's the sermon. That's six minutes. My shortest sermon ever. Be humble. Let's pray. I'm just kidding. It'd be weird. There's a lot more to talk about because it's impossible for us to be humble. And when something's impossible, there's some clarity that needs to be sought because it's certainly a command. Be humble. Why would he command this impossible thing of us? Let's dig a little deeper. Let's consider who we are. Truth is, we're fragile creatures, right? I mean, first of all, we're very small. Like, we feel like we're big because we're bigger than ants and other small things. But we're very small in the vastness of the universe. Like, we, we can't even really comprehend how small we are. But you astronauts that travel and see the Earth as a blueberry, they get a little better than we do. But much beyond that, there's a, a universe. There's galaxies. Like, we're not even the center of our galaxy. But beyond our galaxy, there's... There's many more, more than we even know, and it's forever growing. We don't even comprehend how small we actually are. But not only are we small, but even in our world, even within our relative understanding of creation, we're very weak. Like if you, if you play video games, you know you can kill someone with virtually anything. Cotton ball, a toothpick, whatever you want. You can take someone's life. That's how fragile we are. A virus, a microscopic virus can totally destroy a human being. And we're fragile. 
We bleed easily. We have to create things to protect us from, from the world around us. And, and it's not only fragile, but it's very temporary. Looking at history, we're like some dot on this giant line of world history. And it's going forever into the future. And we're, we're on there somewhere. I mean, we're, we're so temporal. We're so fragile. We're so small. We're so insignificant, but we don't even see it. And even the greatest among us are nothing. They may be famous or infamous for, for their power and their authority and their money, whatever it is, their popularity. Ellen DeGeneres is so likable. She's amazing, right? She's the best of all. I don't know why I chose her randomly. She's not written down. It just came out. All right. So there's those we would hold above the rest. I think she really is a likable person. All right. And we would see them as great in whatever category of greatness, their athleticism, their music ability, their, their artistic ability, whatever it is. We, we hold them as great, but they're just as finite and they're just as fallible as us all. And this thought can be unnerving that we could vanish like a vapor, every single one of us, every person who's ever lived. But don't worry, because we are in complete denial. We'll just deny that's true. We think very highly of ourselves. In fact, we think so highly of ourselves that we, we want to notice everything we can possibly find good about us that anyone else would like, and we want to boast in those things, and we want to shamefully hide all the things about us that people may not like. And then we find these figures in our culture that we idolize, and maybe you're jealous of their skills and their abilities and their gifts, or, or maybe you're just in awe-inspired worship of it. Because we're denying how finite everything actually is. We are incredibly self-absorbed. There's nothing more important to any individual than their own self-interest. And our own renown. And it's, it's complete denial of the truth. That we're finite and we're small and we're insignificant. We just don't want that to be true. We despise that that's true. And we try to convince ourselves we're great and we want to be greater and faster and stronger as if bigger equals better. And why do we do it? Well, we do it because naturally, sinfully, we despise humility. It's not a virtue to us. It's not something desirable. It's against our nature in every way. The last and the least is not at all desirable. We want to say it is and pretend like it is because we're Christians and we're supposed to think that way. But nobody in here wants that. It's against us. Our sinful nature hates that idea. We don't want to be last. We don't want to be the least. We fight against it. And this way of thinking seems to be exactly the opposite of what Jesus is saying in these passages. It seems that he would say humility is a virtue. And I think if we desire to be like Jesus, we need to understand that. How can that be greatness? How, is that, how can that be something we want? Surely we're missing something, right? Well, let's take a closer look. And we'll break down the passages, starting in verse 30. They went on from there and passed through Galilee, and he, he did not want anyone to know, for he was teaching his disciples. So they're going through Galilee, and they're headed to Jerusalem. So backtrack a little bit. We were on the Mount of Transfiguration a few weeks ago. Some amazing, crazy things happened up there. Go back and listen to it. And we came down 
to see a scene where there's chaos, there's arguing going on, there's a boy possessed by a demon being thrown into epileptic seizures, and, and he was, his father was desperate that he would be delivered of this demon. The disciples had failed at doing it, and Jesus shows up, and he shows compassion to the father, and he, he takes what little belief he has, and he delivers the boy from the demon, and the crowds disperse in awe of Jesus, and they, they're now on their way to Jerusalem. And they have to pass through Galilee to get to Jerusalem. And the reason they're headed to Jerusalem is because Jesus knows something that no one else knows. He's headed to be crucified. So the way Mark is written is he compacts the first 30, 32, 33 years of Jesus' life into to nine, ver- or nine chapters. And then he slows way down in the last couple weeks. And so the rest of our time in Mark, we're headed to the cross We've been headed that way all together, but now we're literally on the road to Jerusalem to be crucified. And Jesus knows this, though his disciples don't know. And so he wants some privacy. And he's, he's asking that no one knows where they are because he wants to do some teaching to his disciples in privacy. So we're going to see that in the next uh, sermon, sermons to come. Jesus is doing some specific teaching for his disciples, the church. And so let's be with them there on this road headed to Jerusalem, and he says to them, The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And when he is killed, after three days he will rise. But they did not understand the saying, and they were afraid to ask him. So this is the second time Jesus has indicated he's going to be crucified, and the first time didn't go so well. Remember Peter was like, No, you're not. I don't know what you're talking about. We stopped in that. And Jesus rebuked him immediately and called him Satan, which is probably the worst thing that could happen to any person ever. Jesus turned to him and said, get behind me, Satan. I don't know how you would feel. I would be uncomfortable. And so this time, they just didn't say anything. They didn't get it. They didn't understand, but they were afraid to ask him because they didn't want to be called Satan. But it, we'll find out in a minute, they were a little distracted by some other things as well. It's, it's incredible to me that every time we see Jesus foretell his crucifixion, the disciples overwhelmingly blow their response. And, and this one isn't very descriptive. He just says, I'm going to be delivered to the hands. This is actually the first time he said, I'm going to be delivered into the hands of men. And after three days, I'm going to raise from the dead. And, and we'll hear next chapter, he's going to be more, a lot more specific as to what happens. Um, but this is enough. This is enough for them to see, for them to question, okay, no, you're Jesus. You're the greatest. I mean, I would, I think, I would be like, please explain this to me because you have control over all things. We've seen you stop storms. We've seen you cast out demons. You've never failed. You've always been faithful. You've been the best teacher that anyone has ever heard. You, you teach with authority that's unlike anything we've ever heard on this earth. No one is like you. How is it possible that men are going to take you and kill you? And it's a legitimate question that should be asked. I mean, for me, I would, I would want to understand how this great man can be crucified, can be killed by men. But for now, we'll leave it there. We'll come back to it when we get to the end of this. But, but let's ask this question. What does it mean to be great? If Jesus is saying, I'm going to be killed, I'm going to lay down my life. What does it mean then to be great? In verse 33, And they came to Capernaum, and when, they, and when he was in the house... 
He asked them, what were you discussing on the way? Of course, he knows, but he asked them, what were you discussing on the way? But they kept silent, for on the way they had argued with one another about who was the greatest. Now, absurd that they're having this conversation. I mean, first of all, they're grown men. You're not supposed to talk about this sort of thing past the age of eight. I'm faster than you are. Nuh-uh. Let me see your muscles. I mean, that happens when you're eight years old. But these are grown men talking about which one of them is the greatest. I can't even... I can't even imagine the conversation happening between me and my friends. Everyone thinks it, but you don't talk about it. That's so strange to me. And especially following what they had just experienced. Nine of these guys just failed at casting out a demon. Jesus shows up and does it. And then he tells them, I'm going to give up my life. The one you know as the greatest is going to die at the hands of men. And immediately afterwards, they're having a conversation, an argument rather, of who is the greatest among us. And you know Peter's in on it, because he's always opening his mouth at the wrong time. And and he was, I mean, I was with Jesus on the mountain, so I could have cast out the demon, but I I just wasn't there. So I'm probably the greatest. I I can't even comprehend how they're having this conversation, but they certainly are. And Jesus knows that they are. Maybe they thought he wasn't hearing. Even if he was out of earshot, he knows everything. And so he calls him out. Hey, what were you guys talking about on the road? And they're immediately, and realizing immediately that they shouldn't have been having that conversation. They just keep silent. Let's, let's try for a minute just to sympathize. This is, I mean, this is incredibly drastically different than the person they're following and trying to be like. Jesus speaks of the necessity of his rejection, his suffering, his death, while they're talking about their ambitions to greatness. And, and Jesus talks about giving up his life while they're thinking about how they're going to add to the status of their lives. But let's just try to sympathize with this craziness. Because if we're in the shoes of these disciples, these men who used to be nobodies, fishermen, tax collectors, people despised by their culture, and now they're with Jesus. He is the King, the Savior of the world. He has demonstrated power like they've never seen. He has offered them the opportunity to follow and to be like Him. So in their heads, they're going to be like this guy. He's teaching me how to be like Him. And they're hopeful for greatness. I mean, He has filled their boat with fish. He has cast out demons. He's stopped storms. He's given them food to eat when there was nothing. Like He made it from nothing. And this is the man they're following. You've got to think that these nobodies feel like somebodies for a legitimate reason. Finally, they're somebody. All of a sudden, the Messiah is with them. And their chances of greatness have have changed. They're, they're, They're going to be respected. They're going to be admired. This kingdom he talks so much about sounds a lot like power and authority and freedom and fame. And so they're thinking, we're going to be at the top. I wonder which one of us is going to be at the very top. This sinful desire we have to never be the least and to always be the greatest is making itself manifest in these guys who have been led to believe because they're blind to the truth that they're somebody. And so Jesus responds like he always does. He knows this is what's going on. So he tells him, look, the son of man is going to be delivered into the hands of man and he will be killed. 
That should be enough. But they just don't get it. Instead, instead of trying to get it, instead of trying to understand, they argue about who's going to be the greatest. And Jesus, much better than we could, responds with this amazing grace like He always does in verse 35. He sat down and He called the twelve. I just love this position of a teacher sitting down, drawing His brothers in, drawing in the twelve. And He said to them, trying to help them understand, if anyone would be first, he must be last of all, servant of all. This is so backwards. It's exactly the opposite of everything we know. And it's and to be clear, Jesus isn't repudiating greatness. He's redefining greatness. He's not saying you're not going to be great. He's saying what you think great is, is completely wrong. It's the opposite of what you know. Aspiring to greatness is aspiring to service. Trying to be first is trying to be last. The, the total upside down of everything you know is true. And it's this countercultural idea, this, this thought, this profound thought that if anyone would be first, he's to be last of all, servant of all. It's totally the opposite of how we feel and think. That even if it sounds good to us, we have no way of making it happen. Because everything in us desires to be first. One commentary I read said, At no point does the way of Jesus diverge more sharply from the way of the world than on the question of greatness. There's nothing about Jesus that's more opposite than the way we think and see and live and breathe than what it means to be great. And if greatness is what you seek, you must seek to be last of all, servant of all. Now the Greek word, I don't, I don't often tell you the Greek words because I think it's weird. You don't know Greek, why does it matter? But the, the Greek word for servant here is a word that we get deacon from and it's actually diakonos. It's, that's how it's read in Greek. And, that, and it's different, different endings, just like Spanish, you conjugate, you change endings. But here, using this passage, it's diakonos. And the reason it's, it's important to know that word is because deacon, as we know in the church, has been totally distorted from what it's meant to be. Deacon, now in the church, often is found to be these people of authority and powers making decisions and can get rid of the pastor if we need to. And the deacon is supposed to be Servant of all, least of all. And this idea of being a deacon, this kind of servant, is not your waiter at a restaurant. It's not hired help. And it's not a slave. This deacon is indicative of a lifestyle of service. I live to serve. A deacon is voluntarily giving his, his or her life to service. This type of servant and to this culture, the, the first century Eastern culture, service is not at all virtuous. Even less than it is to us. It's totally undesirable. No one wants to be a servant. Even if you paid me, I don't want to be a servant. That's this culture. So insert an object lesson to help them understand a little better. Jesus brings in a child. And, and they're in Capernaum, which is the hometown of Peter and Andrew. And so this is likely Peter's house. We know because they use uh, an article, the house. They went into the house. And Greek doesn't have 
uh, an indefinite article. So when they use a definite article, it means something. So this house they're in is likely the house of Peter, which means this child is likely the child of Peter. So before Peter, who was probably leading the argument, Jesus draws his child to himself, puts them in their midst, taking him in his arms, and he said to them, Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. And whoever receives me receives not me, but him who sent me. And in this culture, a child is the lowest of social status. And, and kind of coincidentally, but I believe it's more wordplay here. Jesus, this was written in Greek, but Jesus spoke Aramaic. And in the, in the Aramaic language, the word for child is the exact same word as the word for servant. So he's talking of a servant. He certainly clearly said servant before. And now he's talking of a child. And this, this has to be clear by now. It's object lesson here. The lowest of the low. And the, the reason children are low in social status in this culture, unlike us, like we idolize our kids. We have Angetis, put them in a pumpkin and take a picture. It's so beautiful. Children in this culture were not idolized in that way because, because death rates were so high that it really wasn't valuable emotionally for emotional stability to idolize your children in that way. But beyond that, it was very imperative that you add something to the family's livelihood and children were unable to do that. And so they were sucking resources and giving nothing back. And I know that seems insensitive, but that's how they viewed kids. And if they grew to be adults, then they were valuable. And so you want that. You feed them. You care for them. But Jesus, as he's always doing, is doing stuff that nobody's ever done. He's taking a child into his arms. He's receiving this child, holding him closely. And he's saying, look, if you're going to be great, you need to get this. It's like receiving this nobody, this one who can give nothing back to you, this bottom. There's nothing beneath this. And this is where I'm putting myself. You only understand what it means to receive me when you understand what it means to receive the lowest in status, not the greatest. You don't know Jesus unless you get this. And you don't desire to... to you can't, you can't believe that the Father in heaven would receive you because you're awesome. You can't believe that God wants you because of your greatness. If you do somehow believe that and you live your life trying to be good enough so He'll want you, it's going to be a miserable life because you're going to fail often and be ashamed or you're going to succeed and think you're so amazing that everyone needs to be like you and then you're misleading people and, and, then, and you're lying to yourself because you know that you're not that awesome. God doesn't want you because you're awesome. If you desire to be recognized by the Father, it's not going to be because you're awesome. It's going to be because you realize you're not and you need Jesus. This is demonstrated by how we serve others and those who are culturally considered beneath us, not just in feeling sorry for them. So hear me, just feeling sorry for the homeless person, just feeling sorry for those underprivileged isn't what he's talking about. It's this receiving them into your arms. It's getting down, sitting in the dirt with them. It's caring for them as equals, knowing that you are nobody just as they are nobody. You both are in need of somebody who can help you. It's starving for bread, the bread of life, and being just as dependent on Jesus as the person you're serving. 
It's never seeing yourself as better than everyone else. In fact, it's seeing others better than you see yourself. It's something that you cannot do on your own. Going to the soup kitchen doesn't do it. Giving some change to a homeless person doesn't do it. This is a heart change, not an action change. Jesus wants his disciples to see that the closer they think they are to the front of the line, the further off they are. And he wants the same for us. So so what does an all-sufficient God desire of his creation? He desires us to see who we are in right perspective. He desires us to be humble. And it's all over scripture. We can see it everywhere. It's not going to be on the screen, but I'll just say a few places. First of all, Proverbs, the book of wisdom, has it all over the place. I couldn't even list out all the verses Proverbs has on the wisdom and being humble and how God despises the proud. But just to give you some passages, Micah 6 8, it says, What this is, these are all going to be, I mean, just chunks taken out. So feel however you want to feel about it. But Micah 6 8 says, What does the Lord require of you? Do justice, love kindness, and walk humbly with God. Ephesians 4. One, one through three. Walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain unity of the spirit. And unity is not possible unless we're able to be humble. Colossians 3, verse 12. Put on then as God's chosen one, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, patience, James 4, 6-7 through and verse 10. God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves therefore to God. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and He will exalt you. 1 Peter 5, 5-6. Clothe yourselves with all humility. For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves therefore under the mighty hand of God, that in due time He may exalt you. It's, it's all over. Be humble. Don't be proud. Submit yourself to God. Realize it's not about you. It's all about God. And everywhere else in Scripture, when it's not talking about us, it's God talking about it. It's about me. It's about my glory. It's my namesake. If it's not about me, if you don't see it's about me, you're making it about you and you will fall short. It will fail you. You're not good enough to save yourself. You're not good enough to save anyone. Humility is necessary to be all about God's glory. It requires us to not be about our glory. So why is humility important? Because the glory of God is important. This ultimate aim that he has for himself is the same aim he has for us. For it to be all about him for our good. And if we are so blinded by the illusion of our own greatness or the ambition to be something great, then we'll totally miss it just as these disciples have. And we are not at our greatest when we think we're great. We are at our greatest when God is most glorified in us. When it's not about us at all. And the, and the antithesis of humility is pride. And so when we start with pride, thinking awesome about ourselves, and we try to do the opposite, we don't get humility, even though they are opposites. When we start with pride and we try to not be prideful, what we get is self-loathing. We hate ourselves. We, think, we talk bad about ourselves. We pretend we don't matter. That's not it either. Humility is something far greater than self-loathing. 
It's far greater than self-deprecation. Humility is this freedom to see that you are great. You are significant. But not because of you. Because of Jesus in you. Because you've been clothed in the righteousness of Christ. You matter. Humility is seeing God do great things through you and, and desiring no credit for it because you can't take credit for it. Humility is a freedom in Jesus. And pride is something that can't be hidden. So you can lie and pretend you're not, you're not prideful, but it can't be hidden. It works its way to the surface because it's trying to elevate you. It's, it's critical of others. It's judgmental. It belittles and it demeans and it shoves people down. It shoves people to the side. In order for self-exaltation to happen, you have to push everyone else down. And humility destroys the unity that we need as the church. And Christ is after unity, so he hates pride. And even after the object lesson that Jesus was so gracious to give them, they still don't really get it. They don't say anything. But John speaks up. Subject change. And it's... it's it's strange, it seems disconnected, but it's actually affirming their misunderstanding. In verse 38, John said to him, Teacher, we saw someone casting out demons in your name and we tried to stop him because he was not following us. It's like he's like, okay, we're in trouble, I think. So let me try to get out of this. Hey, teacher, we, we, were, we saw someone doing some stuff that you would really disapprove of, so we stopped them for you. But Jesus responds and he says, do not stop him. For no one who does a mighty work in my name will be able soon afterward to speak evil of me. For the one who is not against us is for us. For truly I say to you, whoever gives you a cup of water to drink because you belong to Christ will by no means lose his reward. So John is bothered by this, this person casting out demons. I mean, ironically, this is the very task that the disciples have failed to have. But he's bothered that someone is casting out demons and doing it in the name of Jesus. And he's, he's not a part of their clique. He's not one of the twelve. He's not one of us. He's not following us. He doesn't say he's not following you, Jesus. He says he's not following us. So it's still this mindset of, I'm above everyone else. I may not be Jesus, but everybody else is down here. And this guy should not be doing that because he's not following us. I'm going to tell Jesus so he realizes we're not the least. I'm going to bring this up in conversation so he sees we're worth having around. That he needs me. It's, it's Jesus' only thing he can, the only thing he can do is Jesus' response to say, don't do that. You're still missing it. Don't see him as less than you. So John obviously doesn't believe this guy is a believer. But Jesus sees that he is. If he's, if he's doing this, he's obviously empowered by God. If he's doing it in my name, he's for me. And if he's for me, he's not against us. Why would you stop him? And it, this could even be a guy, for all we know, that had a demon. And Jesus cast it out because he's done this a lot. It's not even all recorded in Scripture. This could be a guy that Jesus personally touched and saved. Now he is so excited about the salvation that Jesus provides that he's doing this in the name of Jesus, by the power of God, because he is for Jesus. And so when I read that, when I read that passage, it was this immediate thought to our context 
How does this play out in our world? Well, we're a church among many churches that make up the church. And, and more than that, we're a church plant in Monroe that's got tons of churches. Some of them dying and suffering. But there's lots of churches here. So do we think less of other churches? And do they think less of us? Is there this strange sense of competition that often exists in the church world between us and other churches? I don't want there to be, but I want to honestly answer the question. And I've had a lot of conversations with pastors in this area about our church. And many of them very grateful for a church plant because they understand church planning is how every church starts and that's how lost people are reached. And we, des- we have this unified desire to see lost people saved. But if I'm honest, it's so hard for me to believe that pastors are genuinely excited about our church. Like, I know that there are some. I know that there's some people who are really excited about it. But in the conversations, I, I, I want to observe body language and, and the word choice. I want to see their, I want to try my hardest, though I can't, to see their heart. And it's so hard for me to believe they're sincere when they say they're excited about our church. And I hate that. But there's this annoying, ingrained sense of competition in us who all desire to be first. That we would be the greatest church in the area. It would be the biggest church, the best church, the one seeing most salvation, the one reaching the most lost people, the one demonstrating the most compassion. They seem like noble aspirations. But Jesus is saying... Don't do that. Why are you competing? They're not against you. They're for you. It's ridiculous. We're branches of the same tree. If the branch is healthy, the tree's healthy, and that's a very good thing. We should want the other branches to be healthy so that the tree can grow. This isn't about the crossing. This is about the kingdom, and I want freedom from that. And it's so hard. In fact, it's impossible Confession from Kendrick, it's impossible for me to be completely free of that annoying sense of competition. I hate it in me. And you should hate it in you, and we together should hate it in the church. Because it causes division. And we must have unity. Because there is a world of people lost and dying and suffering and totally oblivious to this Jesus that could save. And it would be among us to to want to oppress anyone from reaching those people because of our arrogance, because of our desire to do it. Well, we're not doing it. Why is it so difficult to celebrate with our brothers and our sisters when they do good things? Why is it so difficult to celebrate like we celebrate our own victories? Now, I'm the first person that would have weird feelings about ecumenical things. I just don't like flexing on doctrine. So when we talk about other denominations, it's so hard for me to consider working together. Like I have to really, really process and lay down some things. But there's tears to this, and we have to see there's tears to this. The, tier, the bottom tier is big, and it's the foundation of this. We can disagree on everything in this tier and still be brothers and sisters in Christ. Like, you don't have to drink coffee. You don't have to drink alcohol. You don't have to party. 
you don't, I mean, you can struggle with legalism while I struggle with rebellion. I mean, we can be brothers and sisters here. And we can serve Jesus and repent of our sins and serve Jesus and repent of our sins together all day. And then there's the second tier of things in there. And on this tier, there's, some, there's a little bit of holding things closely. If you don't agree with me on this tier of things, you can still be my brother and sister, but we should probably be a part of different local churches. Because we disagree on some things. I don't agree with the way Presbyterians see baptism or the way they see communion. But Presbyterians are my brothers and sisters in Christ. And I will work with them for the kingdom. And I want to see them flourish and grow. I want to see their churches grow. Even though I disagree with some things. And other denominations can be included in that. But on this top tier, there's some very crucial things on this top tier. But it's also the smallest. Like the virgin birth, the deity of Christ, his death, burial, and resurrection, he being fully God, not a creation of God. Is there some important things on this tier? And yours may, your list may be longer than mine, but I want to keep it as short as I can. But in that tier, if you don't, if you don't agree, then you're not a brother or sister. I don't want to do this with you. We're not fellowshipping like you're my brother or sister. And I hate that. I long for you to be saved. And so there's certainly some denominations who may be cut off from that tier. And that's a conversation we can have in private and we can pray and work through some of those things. There's certainly some organizations and some groups that I would consider cults of the Christian faith that are not brother and sister. But I want to do everything I can with open arms to accept everyone that can fit in those other two tiers so that we can work Together to reach the lost. And I want there to be as much unity as possible, as difficult as it may be to lay aside some doctrinal differences. Because there's something far bigger than us, far greater than us at work here. And if I allow my pride to keep me from the the lost being saved, if I want to say, hey Jesus, this guy over here is doing some things I don't think you'd approve of. I don't want to hear Jesus say, stop doing that. I want to see that this is much bigger than me right now. Because he's already told me. We already have his word. It's already clear to us. This is far beyond us. And above all else, we must be humble. Because pride will destroy unity. C.S. Lewis says, Pride gets no pleasure out of having something, only out of having more of it than the next man. It is the comparison that makes you proud. The pleasure of you being above the rest. Once the element of competition is gone, pride is gone. We have to destroy this desire to compete. Pride is so pervasive and it's a destructive evil that would want to cling to us as individuals and cling to us as a church and we must repent of it because it destroys us. It destroys unity. And if you would... If you want to lead anyone to love and serve Jesus, you have to do away with the pride in your heart and forever pursue greatness in humility. Pride will force you to lie and to abuse and to manipulate. It will force you to press others down in your ascent to the top. Pride is not going to be the payoff you think it's going to be. It'll only leave you alone at the top at the very best. And so Jesus, helping us out here, says if you're going to be first, you must be last. 
And everything you knew is on its head. Everything is opposite of what you thought it was. Jesus has come to turn everything around. Our sinful nature is the opposite of what we were created to be. And he's come to restore us back to who we're supposed to be. And he's made it possible, this impossible thing he's made possible. Because he doesn't say, you can be second or third, even though that would be easier. But there's still some beneath us, so we feel okay about ourselves, we're comfortable there. He says you must be last. He wants us at the bottom. He wants us down at the lowest level, last of all. Even more, the servant to the last of all. To embrace them, to bring them near. It's no coincidence that in this, the last passage, Jesus used an illustration of service to give a cup of water. Well, I want our church to be handing out cups of water to every church in the area. I want us to, to allow the, the grace of God to make us humble, that we would fuel others on their mission just as much as we would want to fuel one another on our mission. I want us to see and celebrate the victories of our brothers and sisters in reaching the lost as we celebrate our victories in reaching the lost. I want us to be humble because I know it's, it's necessary for the kingdom to grow, for there to be unity. Service to others is the primary way we as believers are going to imitate and fulfill our identity in Jesus. Service to others is how we realize our identity in Jesus. That's why we call ourselves a family of servant missionaries. It's imperative that we serve. So how do we be humble? Well, we can't. It's impossible. Jesus makes us humble and it's demonstrated in our service. It's not serve so you can be humble. It's Jesus has made you a servant. And, and in, in your humility, you serve. It's my hope and prayer that as the Crossing Church, we will be all about the kingdom and not about the Crossing Church. So to point it to the point of all of this, like I said at the very beginning, be humble. But the only problem is it's impossible. In fact, the moment you realize you're humble, it's gone. Like you're so close to it. I'm almost humble. And, and as soon as you realize it, pride takes over. So we're always working towards it and never fully reach it. But let's work towards it. Before the world began, before anything was in existence, knowing that we would be prideful, knowing that we would think so highly of ourselves in total denial of reality, Worshipping the creation over the creator. Knowing us at our absolute worst. Jesus chose to demonstrate his love in this way. That he would humble himself. And become a man. And serve at the lowest level. And wash the feet of lowly men. And he would demonstrate his humility to the point of death on a cross. And giving himself up to men. To be killed on a cross. And then he would raise victorious power over sin and death, overcoming the world, demonstrating greatness, though he was tortured and murdered by those he came to save. He rose from the dead, and now with the same power that rose Jesus from the dead is alive in us, making us great, not in our own abilities and skills, but as we faithfully humble ourselves and we follow him, he's glorified in our lives, and he's made much of, and we're made less of. And in ourselves, we would never accomplish that sort of greatness. So the very thing that makes us humble is the fact that we're weak and unable. 
And so we're dependent on Him. Sinners in need of a Savior. Children in need of a Father. Servants in need of a Master. Humility at its core. John Piper says, Humility of humility. Every good thing in the Christian life grows in the soil of humility. Without humility, every virtue and every grace withers. To help you wrap your mind around this, our faith would not be if not for humility. We wouldn't be dependent on our need for Christ if sin, if our sinful state, we were making it about us. God had to make us humble. We would not worship God if we were prideful. God had to show us He's worthy of our worship and humble us instead of us making it about ourselves. We would not obey God's commands. We wouldn't surrender our independence and submit to His authority and the authority of Scripture if God had not made us humble. We would not love anyone. We wouldn't sacrifice anything. We wouldn't serve anyone if God did not make us humble. We wouldn't see that there's any good in, any, in giving anything up of ourselves. We wouldn't see that it's worth sacrifice if God didn't first make us humble. We wouldn't give. We wouldn't pray. We wouldn't live as missionaries. We, we'd be alone. We'd be empty. We'd be ashamed. We'd be anxious. We'd be overwhelmed. We'd be afraid. We'd be desperate to make it to the top knowing that we're never going to make it there if God didn't make us humble. And so humility is core to Christianity. Because in the soil of humility, every good virtue grows. We must think less of ourselves and more of God. Only God can do this through the person and work of Jesus Christ. Through the power of the gospel, He saves us and He makes us humble. And He unleashes this joy in us to serve. It's not an obligation. It's a joy in us to serve our church and to serve the world and to serve the least. And so in our spiritual maturity, even in our spiritual maturity, we are arrogant. We're self-centered. In fact, we often think, even in this sermon, this is about me. This isn't about you. How hard is it for us to break free of this? We're thinking, okay, here's the things I need to change for my life. I'm going to make a list of all the ways I'm not humble and I'm going to work at each other and I'm going to be less prideful. It's not about you. The way you find freedom from that list is to stop thinking it's about you. Even in our fight to be pure, even in our fight to be holy, in our fight to do away with sin, it's not about us. It's about the glory of our God. That He has made you humble. That He has delivered you from sin. Your addictions, your, your ambitions for self-interest, everything that you hate about yourself, you don't have power to do away with it. That's the point of the gospel. That your God has done everything necessary to take that from you. Stop trying to fight for first. Stop trying to push your way to the top. Stop trying to make yourself better because you can't. Rest in the grace of God that Jesus has done everything necessary and given Himself up to the hands of men. The great one, the greatest one, has given Himself up to conquer everything you struggle with, to make you humble and find freedom in the gospel. I'm going to pray. We're going to worship this God who's made this possible, but I want to offer you some questions of reflection so you can really wrestle with this. And I don't know how helpful it will be, but 
I hope that it is. Um, so if you want to just focus on these questions, and they're yes or no. So if you answer yes, it's a bad thing. <laughs> but be honest with yourself, okay? Do you take pleasure in being praised? Or do you feel frustrated when you get no credit? Do you long to be honored and feel entitled to appreciation? Do you find popularity as a crucial part of your self-worth? Do you name drop or pretend to know people better than you actually do just so others will think highly of you? Do you pretend or attempt to have something to say about everything, even if it means making it up as you go? Do you fear that people will think lowly of you or, or think that you don't know what you're doing? Do you think that, that people just don't understand you otherwise they would agree with you? Do you get frustrated when people disagree or disapprove of your actions and your thoughts? And we could go on. These indicate you have an issue of pride. These indicate not that you're not trying hard enough. They indicate that you're not believing. Jesus has made you great. Jesus is your hope. Jesus is your satisfaction. He has affirmed you as you are before anything was. He knew you would be this way and He has loved you enough to give Himself up for you so that you would find freedom from the things that oppress you and the things that depress you and the things that drag you down. Trust Him. Believe. Know that He's done it. And then see it work out in your life in the way you serve and you put yourself beneath and you think of others over yourself. Father, I thank you so much for your word. I praise you that we aren't enough. I praise you for the realization that we are weak and we are fragile and we are in need of a Savior. And I praise you for being that Savior. I thank you for your gospel. I thank you that it's not something we have to work hard at or grit our teeth or fight for, but that you have freed us from the obligation. You've given us a joy in our obedience. And so I pray that it not be our response to abuse these graces and do whatever we feel, but to be humbled by it. To see that you have been gracious and to be grateful for it. And in our gratitude, let us be obedient. Let us fight for what's right. Let us work hard at it, not in order to change ourselves, but in order to demonstrate our love for you. As your gospel does a work in us as individuals, I pray that you would work in us as a church. That you would take away this sense of competition that you would show us when we lay down our, our weapons against our brothers and sisters, when we lay down our animosity and our jealousy, when we put aside this ridiculous desire to be better than other churches, that you would... Show us how gracious you are in bringing this to mind and show us how gracious you are to, to, to use us to reach the lost, to use us to glorify you. And as we glorify you and make less of ourselves, let it bring peace, let it bring joy, let it bring freedom that we so much desire. And that in putting ourselves at the bottom, we would see you've made us great. Thank you so much for your word, Jesus. Thank you so much for how you've saved us and you're working in us to continue this work of salvation. I pray that you would be worshipped in this time. In Jesus' name.